These passages from Revelation 2, 12 to 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, so good morning, church, uh, to those uh, that are here and also joining us online. Uh, I was reminded this morning, uh, just coming in uh, through the snow, that the passage in Isaiah 55, uh, 10 to 13, but I'll just read verse 10 for us. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It would not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. I believe every single time that we come together and open up God's word, that God is doing something powerful, and he's doing a new work in us and through us. So today, technically, every two weeks, I'm not sure, not technically, every two weeks we've been going on a pattern of having corporate prayer. Well, today we're doing things a little bit differently. We're going to spend a little bit of time in the word together. I'm going to carve out six minutes. I think we can afford that. I'll try to uh, shorten the message <laughs> a little bit for that. But for you to actually open up the Word, whether through your phone, uh, online, uh, to open up your screens or open up your physical Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 today, which is where we're at, 2, verse 12 to 17, which Evelyn just read for us, and answer these two questions. What part of this letter stands out most to you? And number two, in this letter, Jesus calls out the church in Pergamum for blending into culture. What are some harmful or helpful ways that you see Christians blending into culture today? So in groups two, in three or four around you, uh, just huddle up, and I'll give us six to seven minutes to discuss. And for those joining on online, you can also do the same uh, to spend a little bit of time uh, in the Word. And then I'll come on up and give the message. I'm not sure what, how that experience was for you, but I want to encourage you uh, every single day just to spend a little bit of time uh, in the Word, and I believe that God will speak and He'll do wonders uh, to you. Well, we're continuing in our series on the book of Revelation, Future in Focus, and I'm titling the sermon today, The Spiritual Battle of Our Time. So we go back into the book of Revelation, its context, it's 96 AD with Emperor Domitian 
and reign. He's one of the most narcissistic rulers and emperors and cruel emperors that has ever existed. And there was this imperial cult that was happening where they're worshiping uh, Domitian and the, the emperor as God, Caesar as God. And these Christians that were not, not bowing down to Caesar, they're being persecuted all over the Christian, uh, all over the Roman Empire where, uh, because they, were, they wouldn't bow down to Caesar and declare that he is God because they were saying, no, Yahweh is God. He is the one that I am following. And enter John, the Apostle John, who's now in his mid-80s, exiled on the island of Patmos. And despite the situation, Jesus gave him, a, gave John a revelation, apocalypsis, right? That's the word we've been using, a, a vision, an unveiling, an apocalypse of who he is. And maybe we remember reading a revelation 1, a 12 to 23, a 13, that says, I turned around, that is John, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, which represents the churches. And among the, seven lamp, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. So Jesus allowed John to see this vision, uh, this revelation, this unveiling of who this uh, Jesus is and what God is doing, even though it doesn't seem like, uh, uh, even though it doesn't seem like God is in control because of the situation. He gives him an unveiling that the reality behind the reality that we're seeing in the world, that God is in control and that he knows what's going on. So despite everything that's going on, Jesus is standing among the lampstands. Jesus is standing among his church. As Daryl Johnson says, John is being let in on the great unseen reality of the present moment, that the risen, reigning, majestic, merciful Savior stands in the middle of his churches. And he stands in the middle of your church and my church today. You notice today, as Evelyn read for us, how Jesus calls Pergamum a city where Satan has his throne. It's pretty strong language. And where Satan lives. Uh, why? Well, below, uh, as you see here, this is actually modern-day uh, Bergama, which is uh, in the distance there. But the city of Pergamum is on, perched on this rock, uh, as we see in the front left of this a photo. You can actually take a tram up to the Acropolis <laughs> to see uh, this ancient uh, city. Uh, right now, that's uh, located in Turkey. But Pergamum is about 90 kilometers north of Smyrna, and Smyrna is north of Ephesus. So, in the letters, as we move through the letters, we're moving further north in geography. Uh, and, and Pergamum is the capital city of the Roman province of Asia, and it's located in the valley, uh, but also uh, located in the valley, but it's actually perched also on top of this rock here within uh, this valley. So uh, imagine back in the ancient days as you're traveling towards Pergamum, you would be wowed by the city. You would see the city that's perched on uh, this rock. You wouldn't walk, uh, you wouldn't, there's no one that will walk by and not be impressed by the myriad of temples and altars. As church historians write, the, Acrop the Acropolis of Pergamum crowned a steep hill that rose 1,000 feet above the plain. Near the summit stood an immersed altar to Zeus, erected by Eumenes II to commemorate the victory won by his father. And at a short distance from this altar, there was an elegant temple of Athena. So this is like any other Roman uh, town, a city of its day. Uh, many altars, many temples, many statues dedicated to the many gods that, th that were being worshipped. And some other deities being worshipped there in Pergamum was Asclepios, which was known as the savior god. 
So people went to this temple as a savior god, and there's snakes all over the temple. Uh, and the, the symbol for this god was actually a, the serpent. So you would lie there if you needed healing, and if a snake crawled over you, that was a divine touch of this, of this god. And people will go to this temple, and they will worship this god with the symbol of a serpent, which is what we know in Genesis, the symbol for Satan as well. So maybe it's within that kind of illustration, that imagery, that that Jesus is speaking to John and that's written to this church in Pergamum, that's located in the city of Pergamum, uh, that, yeah, we, God's like, I know that Satan lives there, like both symbolically but in a very real spiritual way. It's also famous to its library that carries, uh, that carried over 200,000 parchment scrolls. And here's a, a re- rendering of what the city looked like. And 200,000 parchment scrolls. And the word parchment, I'm not sure if you know this, in, in my reading, the word parchment is actually a derivative of the word pergamum. That's where, that's where how we got the word parchment from. So in other words, the city, it was full of ideas, uh, it's full of words, it's full of uh, learned people, and that's what, they proud, uh, that's what they took pride in. And with this as the backdrop, with this as the backdrop, the main issue that Jesus addresses in the church in pergamum is actually truth. And that word may be triggering for some of us, especially in our day and age. Maybe when we fly into or drive into Vancouver, you don't see a gigantic statue of Zeus, you know, plastered on Grouse Mountain. Uh, or you don't see a temple of Athena uh, right plopped on top of Queen Elizabeth uh, Park uh, or Burnaby Mountain or what have you. But there surely there are gods that are looming over our city as well. The God of me, where I know everything and no one can tell me otherwise. The God of experience, it's about my experience and how I feel. Uh, don't you dare tell me otherwise. The God of self-righteousness and pride. The God of self-made and hard work. The God of fame and money. The God of comfort. How about this? The God of postmodernism, of how truth is relative. Or maybe post-postmodernism, where... It's not even truth is relative, but there's no truth at all. All right, so don't you dare tell me what is truthful because there is no such thing as truth. And Jesus says in this letter that though they maintain their own theological convictions, in verse 13 we read, you remain true to my name, you did not renounce your faith in me, yet it seems like they tolerated some false prophets in their fellowship. Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And maybe this is a segue, and maybe not, and maybe it's connected, and I'm not really sure. <laughs> I think it's connected. The tolerance is really a word that's, that's, that's almost honored or highly valued in our Western and pluralistic society. Tolerance. And by tolerant, we don't usually mean the tr- traditional sense of the word, which is to endure or to sustain hardship or even to allow or permit. At D.A. Carson, he does a deep dive on this word. He's a, a Canadian theologian that lives in the States, the founder of the Gospel Coalition. He writes this, uh, uh, to tolerate in the Encarta in, in in, Encyclopedia, to tolerate means to accept existence of different views and to recognize other people's rights to have different views. So to tolerate means to accept the existence, but Encarta picks up the culture of our time because when defining the noun tolerance, they define it in this way, the acceptance, uh, not just the acceptance of different views, uh, but, but, but also to um, uh, not only to acknowledge that there are different views, but to fully accept them. That's tolerance. You have to accept them to be true. 
only when you do that, then you, you, you are, you are you're a person that has high tolerance. You take on truth as it were. Now, that doesn't really do the topic justice, as I even just fumbled with my words there. But when we say someone is tolerant, what do we really mean? Right? What do we really mean? <laughs> that the person puts up with a lot of views that she disagrees with or she thinks all opinions are equally valid? Is that what we mean by someone is tolerant? Or when we say Christians are so intolerant, do we mean that Christians want all other views and positions to not exist at all? Or do Christians mean that Jesus is the only way to God? As Canadian pastor, theologian, and writer Tim Chalice points out, in a society that's obsessed with tolerance, we're actually not that tolerant at all. There can be no tolerance for people who do not agree with the contemporary usage of the term, in which I kind of put up this little uh, that meme. It's not a meme, it's a card. <laughs> Sorry, you think it's intolerant of me to not tolerate your intolerance. That in a sense, in our day and age today, that, you know what, like, you can't actually tell me what is true and what's not. That the moment that you are trying to define what tolerance means, you are being intolerant, and I don't even need to listen to you anymore. And that's what uh, Chalice calls the plausible, or what sociologists today call the plausibility structure, where it refers to something that is assumed to be true, and you don't even question it. Then when you start questioning it, you are the bigot. You are the one that's narrow-minded. You are the one that doesn't know truth at all. Now, there's a point to all of this. You're like, Doug, thanks for the sociology, sociology lesson and the psychology lesson. But what, it, you know, get to it. What's, what's the word here? See, it's important for us because that's the context of the time, but that's the context of our time as well. That when someone is deemed intolerant, another question that quickly follows is, why are you so narrow-minded? Aren't all Christians just narrow-minded? But there are certain things, as you follow along with me, that we actually do want people to be narrow-minded in. Some examples, laws of science, I think, are pretty narrow-minded. The laws of science are pretty narrow-minded. Water boils at 100 degrees. That's pretty narrow-minded to me. That's just what it is. Or water freezes at zero. Heavy things fall uh, <laughs> because there's something called gravity. The laws of gravity are pretty narrow-minded, uh, in my opinion. I'm, I'm glad that the pilot is pretty narrow-minded at that moment. Are you flying at 30,000 feet or three feet? Right? I don't want to be like, well, we're flying at 30,000. Know, you're being so narrow-minded right now. No, we want them to be accurate uh, with their words. Surgeons, we want them to be pretty narrow-minded. Well, are you working on the liver or not right now? I don't know. Just generally in this direction. I think, you know, what is the liver anyway, right? Like, I don't know. As you, go, as you, as you talk about it, I think you get my point. <laughs> I think we are, I'm trying to paint the picture for us of how complex a time it is that we're living in right now. This, these are the things that we're battling. And there is a real battle because the big idea for us is the spiritual battle of our, of our time is an actual battle for your heart and your mind through something that's called truth or what is truth. The spiritual battle of our time is a battle for your heart and mind and the church in Pergamum was fighting a very real battle. In Revelations 2.12, it starts like this, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. When I first read this, I'm like, where, what happened to Jesus, the person that bends down and picks up the lamb and, you know, hugs the lamb and cuddles with the lamb, <laughs> right? 
the flowing hair and, you know, everything like that. No, Jesus says here, I, I'm the one that's coming with a sharp double-edged sword. Why does Jesus portray himself in this way? Maybe because the symbol for the city of Pergamum was a sword. So he's coming up and saying, I am the sword that's coming up against you right now. Or maybe it's also this, the sword is a symbol for fighting, for a battle. But what are they fighting? As John Stott in his uh, book, What Christ Thinks of the Church, he says this, Here a pitched battle was being fought, of which the soldiers were not men, but ideas. Which the soldiers, they're not men or people, but they're actually ideas. The church in Pergamum, like the church in New York, in Singapore, in London, in Toronto, in Los Angeles, in Vancouver, is caught in a battle for the mind and for your heart. And, the wor- and why do I keep saying uh, the mind and the heart? Well, in the words of Socrates, we are what we think we are. And the ancient people, and I believe the biblical people in the biblical times as well, believed this, that, that the heart is the house for the mind as well. That we operate out of our heart. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Or Eugene Peterson's The Message Translation, keep vigilant, watch over your heart. That's where life begins. There's a spiritual battle going on. I'm not sure if we know this. And it's a battle for your heart and for your mind. So the fight in Pergamum wasn't only a fight for the mind, but it was a fight for the heart. And today, we got to check what we're clinging on to. What is our heart clinging on to? What are our minds clinging on to? In verse 13, the passage continues on this way. I know where you live. It sounds like a threat. I know where you live. (laughs) Where Satan has his throne. Thank you for laughing. I'm not sure who that was. (laughs) Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold on to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual Immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold on to the teaching of Nicolaitans. So we read there in the short three verses, there's a, there's a, holding, uh, a, a holding on to. There's a holding on to. We've got to check ourselves in our heart, in our minds. What is it that we cling on to? You see the church here in Pergamum. They were fighting a very real fight that were coming in from two fronts. There was a pressure, which we talked about last week, uh, there's a pressure that was caused by the outside world, uh, and they were fighting, off, uh, fighting that off pretty well. But there's also this pressure on this other front that's coming in from the inside of the church. And they're doing well fighting off the pressures on the outside, but they weren't doing very well fighting off pressures from the insides as they were spotting lies. They, were con- they weren't very, doing a very good job in spotting lies that are contrary to God's will and God's way. But often, what's more difficult, uh, as I think about this, and as we discern this, it's kind of in an easier way on the outside when we face persecution that of coming in. It's kind of like, okay, say no to the things of the world, okay. But it's a little bit harder for us to, to, to spot a, a, a false ideas and false narratives that, that spawn from within the church. Just to, to spot false ideas and doctrines why is this so hard? Because it's often wrapped up in Christian lingo and religious language, which often, if you study the kingdom of the cults, the book uh, written by Walters, a lot of the cults started with a lot of Christian lingo, 
a lot of things that sounded really good and was wrapped up in religious language, but actually deviated from the teachings of Jesus. So here, that's why Jesus is like, hey, watch what you're clinging on to. Watch, watch what you're holding on to here. As Grant Osborne in his commentary to Revelation writes, to remain true or to hold on to Jesus, Jesus' name means to live up to the responsibility of this new identity, to resist the lure of this pagan world. It's about holding on to truth and love, which often as Christians we talk a lot about. And some Christians, we, we want to hold on to love. And to say it's all about love. Let's just forget about the doctrinal differences. In other words, and in, in, in the words of another commentator, many Christians are turned off by theology and only want a feel-good religion. Then on the other end, we sing, swing so far the other way that it's all pursuit of truth. And we forget to love, like the church in Ephesus. So much so that they become harsh and bitter and impatient and unloving. And it seems like at Pergamum, most of the church members were actually walking in truth, uh, but, and only a few of them were straying off. But, it's, but, but Jesus here, he's still concerned. He's still concerned for the few, the few that are walking off. As John Stott says again, uh, the risen Christ, the chief shepherd of his flock, was grieved both by the waywardness of the minority and by the lack of concern of the majority. That as a church body, we live together. It's not just uh, while minority are, is doing something and we're like, okay, let's let them be. No, as a church body, we come together. That's not only the minority or the majority, it's the body of Christ coming together, guarding the church for the kingdom, pushing his, uh, God's kingdom forward. But here, what really is most important? What is it that we got to cling on to? What is it that we got to hold on to? And this quote is often attributed to Augustine, but is most likely to the German theologian Rupertus Maldinius in the early 17th century. Unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, charity in all things. Unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and charity in all things. So what is essential here? That's the question here. What is the truth that we got to hold on to? In this passage, we see that we are unwavering as gospel followers. We are unswerving. We are maybe narrow-minded, if we use that language, to the truth about who Christ is, about who Jesus is. Revelations 2, uh, 18 uh, says, uh, 13 says this, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. And I love this, that Jesus says, you remain true to my name. And because Jesus' name, it stands for itself. There is power in the name of Jesus. His name reveals who he is, and that's why there's power in his name. There's enough said when you say, when you say Jesus Christ, that's all you need to say. We understand who it is that we're talking about. And that's why we as Christians, we pray in the name of Jesus because it is in the name of Jesus that all things move forward. And for us, we need to be unswerving. We need to remain true. We need to hold fast here to, uh, to our convictions of who he is. We need to hold fast to, that, to our conviction that he is both Lord and Savior and to never let that go. We're unswerving in that. 
We don't pivot around that. We, that, that, never, that truth never pivots. We, it never moves. We hold fast to that truth that Jesus is Lord. We're narrow in our truth of how Jesus is Lord and nothing else. Because when something else becomes Lord, in Christian language, in the biblical narrative, that's known as an idol. Idolatry is real. Because anything that takes precedence in our lives above Christ, biblically, that's defined as idolatry. And you're like, well, what does that really look like? We don't have the temple of Athena. We don't have Zeus. We don't do animal sacrifices in a temple and splatter blood and put them in the fire and all those kind of things. But I want to argue that in our city and in our lives, there's a real wrestling with idols. And maybe we get a hint of this, that we know what our idols are by what we make sacrifices for. We know what our idols are by what we make sacrifices for and why we do it and who do we do it to and for. That's because it's not enough to merely intellectually say back biblically in, in this passage that Jesus is saying is not, uh, is not about just intellectually saying Jesus is Lord. It's not even about being on a platform here and saying Jesus is Lord. It's actually about your heart and your posture and where your trust is. Do you have a full trust in Jesus personally? Do you have this relationship with him personally? And Jesus brings up the example of Antipas here in this passage who lived out his faith in full faith, in full trust of Jesus, which led to his martyrdom as a witness, a martus of Jesus. We read in the passage, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Just put ourselves into Antipas's, that's a mouthful, <laughs> shoes in the day. All you had to do was participate in the imperial cult worship. All you had to do was take a couple of grains of incense and throw it onto the fire. And all you had to do is say, Caesar is Lord, and ye, he would have been free, and he would have been able to walk around. But he couldn't deny the name of Christ. He couldn't denounce the name of Christ. He couldn't compromise in his faith because only Jesus is God. Only Jesus is Lord because Antipas knew who Jesus is. As Paul says in Philippians 2, 9 to 11, Antipas knew this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Antipas ended up giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God because only God is God. Only Jesus is Lord. He would not give that title to anyone else. What about us? What's fighting for your heart? What's fighting for our mind? It's fighting for our attention because it's a real battle that we're caught up in. Secondly, we hold on to the truth about holiness. We're unwavering. Maybe we're narrow-minded in thinking about the truth of holiness, what it looks like to be separate from the ways of culture and separate in the ways of the world. Revelations 2, 14 and 15 says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold on to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold on to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
It's a lot of biblical history and, 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 um, uh, and understanding of the Old Testament here as we've been trying to uh, dig, uh, work through Revelations. There's a lot of references to the Old Testament. You see, the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans were really the same teachers, uh, not to be differentiated uh, from each other. Here, they're actually used in a similar way. They're also found in the church of Ephesus, and, and they did well in fighting them off, but they just had uh, no, no, um, no love as they're doing it. Uh, they're also found in, uh, Daryl Johnson points out that Balaam is actually a Hebrew name, and the Nicolaitans is a Greek name. And together, they actually mean the same thing. The first part of the name means conqueror, and the second part of the name means people. And their, their, their whole purpose was to go around conquering people uh, and their ideas, uh, conquering people for their minds uh, and also their hearts. But you see, Balaam, he was a prophet. Uh, if, if you flip all the way back to Numbers, chapter 22 to 25, you'll find him where Balak, who was king of Moab at that time, summoned Balaam as a prophet to come and to curse the tribes of Israel uh, who are about to cross into the promised land. And, 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 uh, and, but God instructed Balaam, you won't curse my people, you will only assure blessings. So even though Balak invited Balaam to come and curse uh, the, the tribes, he just kept blessing them and it kept growing. And he's like, you're not doing my job. You're not doing what I came here. I hired you to do. So what are you doing here? But Balaam ended up finding a way around. In verse, uh, Numbers 31, 16, it says this. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. And this unfaithfulness wasn't just curse. It was an unfaithfulness to marry foreign women and to be connected uh, with them sexually. So this is the premise here that Jesus speaks into the church in Pergamum, Pergamum, that there's a holiness that's needed, a separateness. But there's the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans that are doing their work within the church and within the city. Holiness has to do with separateness, which is why God often instructed the Israelites to stay away from sexual immorality. For in the act of sex, the two people become one. There's a merging of lives. There's a merging of two people. And what Balaam was to the old Israel as the way that they were, he was tempting them and instructing them, the Nicolaitans were to the new as well. They were placing their false teachings and beliefs and doctrines into the church or mixing different kind of thoughts and saying that it's okay. So here in the church in Pergamum, the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans both taught it's okay. It's okay to eat these foods, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Why? Why? Because God, he's, he's, he's a God of grace. He's a God of love. He knows that we're weak. He'll forgive you anyway. God will forgive us anyway, so, so, so stop trying to live out your, your faith. Stop trying so hard. Jesus has saved us already from the curse of the law, so that it's, it's, it, we're no longer bound by the law. It's all about grace. So live freely. Live and, and enjoy. Live and enjoy the ways, ways of the world. Just go, go, go on. And, and the meat, we know it does nothing to you, so just go eat it anyway. They're teaching it's all good as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. So this idea, which is really a twisting of God's word, seeps its way, and people start participating in activities like worshiping Caesar, maybe, or partaking in the imperial cult. Because why? You're not really worshiping Caesar. You're just doing your civic duty. You're just living out your faith, really. A twisting of the word. 
But how does this such teaching get into the church to begin with? Really, the same way as always I've been through deception. A deception by masking and wrapped up in the language of the gospel. You see, false teachers will never outright deny Jesus because people are like, well, no, I'm not going to follow that. There's always a wrap, wrapping up, a, a, a confusion where the false teachers never outright deny Jesus, but they do in subtle ways. And there's a warning for the church in Pergamum, and I believe there's a warning for us here today as a church that false teaching leads to a false kind of holiness. A twisting on the truth and teaching like this is often covered in spiritual jargon, yet devoid of spiritual truth. That there's a twisting going on that's really hard to discern because it sounds good, it's wrapped up in platitudes that sound holier than they really are. Maybe platitudes that say, doesn't God want you to take care of that and to be a good steward? Or doesn't God want you to take care of your family? Or doesn't God want you to work hard? Or doesn't God, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The same narrative, beginning from the Genesis story all the way to now, and it takes such discernment, spiritual discernment as a body of Christ together to sift through that. So we need to be careful. Just because something or someone claims to be Christian, it doesn't mean it's Christian or it's true. I, I was having a conversation, this was before the pandemic, on the street, a conversation with a Mormon, and, and we're having a conversation, and he found out that I'm, I'm, a, I, I'm a Christian, and I'm a pastor, and he said to me, oh, so you're Christian too. And I paused there. I'm like, I believe we have very different definitions of what it means to be Christian because I believe the Christ that we follow, we don't define Christ in the very same way. Or someone in our congregation shared with me last week of how one of their friends almost went to a church, a Jehovah's Witness church, because he just Googled Christian church. And it showed up, well, the church, right? And it just shows up in the link. And how do we know? We need to be discerning in the, as the body of Christ. We need to be uh, wise. Uh, I, I, we need to be wise and, and, and shrewd in our thinking. So here, eating food and sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality, it may be for us, it may not be huge issues today. Maybe it is huge issues today, but it's also even bigger, in, I would argue, in the first century church, but maybe in different forms. Because the temptation for us today, it just comes out in different ways. Because what are the major issues for us? What does this look like today? In what ways do we need to be holy in our current culture? Maybe it's the idea of truth and morality. That's surely a part of it, that we've got to stand firm in our truth and our morality. But I was convicted of this. Maybe it's actually our views of time and busyness. And not just that, but fullness. What it means to live a fulfilling life. Because if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, I believe if we don't have the truth of who Jesus is, we won't really have the life either of what fullness means. In our current culture, doesn't time seem to be speeding up to the point where we're unable to keep up? We're so hard. There's always more and more and more to do. Andrew Root, in his book, The Congregation of Secular Age, he speaks about this and how in our time we view busyness as fullness, how they're two words that actually mean the same thing. He says this, we take pride in our lives being saturated, even claiming that we're too busy. So maybe, as I think about this, it plays out in our churches needing to pack a lot, 
into our programs and staying busy. We might be also be attracted to churches who have a lot going on because they're staying busy. Because when there's a lot of activity, we attribute that to vitality. Right? When we attribute a busy, when we attribute busyness to vitality, when there's a lot of going on, that must mean there's a lot of life going on. That busyness is equal to fullness in the words of Ruth. That's what culture says. But what does Jesus say? What's Jesus' words? In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, are you tired? Are you worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you recover your life. I'll show you how to take real, a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. Do we listen to the ways of the world and our culture? Because surely it's seeping in. The pressures are real. Or do we listen to the ways of Jesus? And the ways to live this life is actually quite simple. It's the one word there, which we all understand, maybe, I, I think. But it's so hard to live out is the word repent. Verse 16, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and we fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That's an image for you. We don't need to hyper-spiritualize this, but repent simply means to turn. It just says, this just means to turn around because you acknowledge you're going in the wrong direction and now I'm turning towards Jesus. In the Greek, it means to literally change our minds about something. This passage here in verse 16 is both a hopeful promise and a warning. It's a promise because Jesus cares and that he's fighting for you. He cares about you. He doesn't want you to go down the wrong road. He wants you to find life. But we also read here that I will come to you, that is the church, and he'll fight against them. There's also a warning that if we find ourselves on that side, that we reject Jesus, there's a real warning here that there is a battle at the end that we will lose when we comes up against Christ because his words are final. So it's Jesus' words, not what we think, not my own opinions, not even what, uh, the most, uh, what the world thinks. It's actually spending time hearing God and spending time in the word. Which is why we started this portion here today with just a little bit of time in the word. That was, I think, seven minutes uh, in the word. And as you think about your week, how much time do you spend in the word versus the time you spend on other things? whatever you want to fill in that blank with. And for the sake of time, I realize I'm out of time, <laughs> as I am every single week. But why is it two edges of a sword? That's, that's the question I have going on. And, and some theologians, as back to the early church fathers like Tertullian and Augustine, maybe one edge of the sword is the Old Testament of the word, and then one edge of the sword is the New Testament of the word. But no matter what you want to argue, I believe this to be true. The word, as, 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 um, the, the word is this. It says by John Stott, it pricks the conscience and the wounds, the pride of sinners. It cuts away our camouflage and peace, uh, pierces our defenses. It lays bare our sin and need and kills all false doctrine by its deft, sharp thrust. We know that every single time when we read the word, it will help us to pierce through the things that are not of God. 
So it's not even to hear my words here or like, hey, I listened to a sermon or listened to a podcast or talk to a friend. Those are good. We need to discuss. We need to be in community, discern the word together. But what we need is actually to be in the word together. And maybe I could have shortened this message by 30 minutes by just saying, read the Bible <laughs> today. Read the word. If we want, if we want to live lives that are fulfilling and true and good, we need to read the word. As Jesus ends here in this to the church of Pergamum, whoever has hears, let them hear what the church says to the church, what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give the person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. There's a hidden manna uh, that was kept in the jar, uh, it was kept in a jar in the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe that's what's referred to here. But what about this white stone? I love this imagery because in the, the high priest who would wear a breastplate with 12 stones on, on it that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And then in, in, hidden in his uh, breastplate was the Urim and the Thummim, which were two stones that helped the Israelites decide the will of God as well. And as some theologians, there's some at least nine interpretations of what the white stone is. I think the one that makes the most sense is actually this one, that maybe the white stone represents the, 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 it represents the Urim, which is a white stone with the secret name of God on it that only the high priest keeps for himself. That could it be here what Jesus is saying as you read the word, that you too could be a priesthood of all believers, that you could also belong to God, that you could also have access to God in the Holy of Holies, that you could also, as a believer, as you hold firm to the ways of God, that you, just like the high priest going behind the veil, you will also see greater things, not only in the life to come, but also in the life right here and right now. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and you will be victorious. Not in the ways of the world, maybe, but in Christ. You will find full life and joy everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being faithful to us, for your faithfulness, that every time we open up your word, God, that you speak to us. So, Father, I pray not just for change in habits and reading the word, but I pray, God, that you will give us revelation every day as we read your word, that you will unveil to us your truth, the truth that we are loved, the truth that our identity is in you, the truth that we don't need to strive anymore because you, Lord, have done the heavy lifting and all the hard work that you have paved the way for us to experience joy, peace, hope, and all the goodness, God, that we could ever desire. You, Lord, fill the void in our lives. So, Father, I pray for us as a church that we would be truth seekers, that we will be unwavering of, of who you are, Jesus, as Lord, that we will be unwavering about holiness and living in a way that you call us to in the world. And Jesus, may you start with us today. And may you use us to be a blessing to the nations around. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.